something to say. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Project Shadow. My name's Charlie. You might know me better as sci-fi fantasy writer C.E. Dorset, especially if you're reading my book, Crucify My Love, which I, I love, and I hope you do too, available at Amazon because they demand exclusivity if they're going to give you anything. Yeah. <laughs> Anywho, today we're starting a series that I've been thinking about doing for a while, but I didn't know if anybody would be interested. And then I put out a post the other day asking what you all would be interested in me talking about on the show, and Art Plant actually recommended this. And we're actually going to be working on two different series that Art Plant recommended. So, yay, they really helped me feel like I could talk about these things, because, well, so many people have done series like this before. And normally this will be a Tuesday epi episode, but because I had promised Hipster Spock, I would do a breakdown of Love, Death, and Robots on Tuesday. That's what you got yesterday. So today, we're getting the inaugural episode of our, I don't know, Talks About Tropes. We, we need to come up with something, like, snazzy, because trope talk is already taken, and, yeah. I, I would almost want to call this, like, Charlie's bad writing advice, but bad writing advice is already taken. So, uh, any ideas would be helpful. So, the first trope that I wanted to take on is probably the one that I have utilized the most, Let's see, my first novel, Liquid Sky, had Magical Orphan in it. The follow-up to that was Fate's Harrow, which has several Magical Orphans in it. Uh, technically, I guess you could say that Shine Like Thunder maybe has a Magical Orphan, because we don't find out what happens to his family, but he is cut off from them through the story, so maybe it has a Magical Orphan in it. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, the Chain does not have a Magical Orphan in it. At least not in the main cast. So, yeah. Um, neither does uh, Labyrinth of Souls. But Crucify My Love does. So, yeah, that's the majority of my own work. If you're not sure what a Magical Orphan is, it's a person who has lost usually both of their parents, sometimes just one, but usually both of their parents, and is also kind of a chosen one, or at least somebody who's very, very magical, but has no parents. This being a trope of many of my own favorite heroes in Legends, this would be your King Arthur, this would be your Harry Potter, in some ways, maybe Polytrades, in Dune, but it, not in others. That's a topic that we could really go into as we talk about Dune when, you know, closer to the release of the movie, because yeah, there's a lot to dig in there. Needless to say, this is very common to have your main character be an orphan for some reason. 
or to be orphaned at the beginning of the book. And not always, but usually, that orphaning has something to do with the plot of the story. In the, I have to be careful here because I almost said Legend of the Seeker, in the sort of truth books and in the TV show Legend of the Seeker, Richard is a magical orphan, though he does not know that at the beginning of the story. He later comes to know that he is, and of course he is a magical orphan for reasons that would spoil so much if I told you, but yeah, it's important. The same with Harry Potter. He's orphaned for reasons that become very important as the books go on. The easiest answer to that is Voldemort heard of a prophecy that he someone born on a specific day would be the one who brought about his downfall and he had a choice between Neville Longbottom and Harry Potter and he chose Harry Potter. Long story short. Now, why are there so many stories? Because I mean, I could just keep going here. Katniss Everdeen is technically a magical orphan in that while her mother is still alive, we are told that she lived most of her life in kind of a catatonic state, and Katniss had to basically run the household. Again, we can go on and on and on and on and on. In fact, even books that do not have a magical orphan will often go out of their way to make it feel that way. This is one of the things that rubbed me wrong about Twilight so hard, is that both of her parents are still alive, but her relationship with her mom's really weird and she doesn't like her dad and basically acts as though she's an orphan. I think she at one point kind of wishes she was. I don't know. It's been a long time since I desperately tried to read those books because I was curious why people like them. But yeah, she even kind of tries to pretend that she's a magical orphan, even though she's not. Having said all that, why? Why are magical orphan stories so common and often so loved? Well, a magical orphan story has its precedent in the, for lack of better terms, we're going to say the virgin birth mythos. The Buddha was not born of his mother and father. The story tells us a white elephant came to his mother in a dream and then entered her womb. We then have the miraculous story about his birth that follows. Of course, everybody knows the stories of Jesus it's often said that Mithras had a virgin birth, but we don't know. The, there, there's very little actually known about the cult of Mithras or the characters surrounding them, but most gods or folk heroes are said to have an origin that is unearthly. Even um, Caesar Augustus was claimed to have been born of the gods because he needs to be. Why? These are all personages, whether historical or in the case of like Isis, Osiris, and Horus, Horus being the ultimate virgin birth and that his father was dead when his mother conceived. Ugh, divine necromance, necrophilia. Ugh. Um, I love Egyptian mythology, but it gets weird. Anyway, all of these characters are born of an unnatural birth because we need to show you how they are different from the world. They are not of this world. 
for whatever reason that will be. The stories of the Buddha's virgin birth come fairly late in the biographical sagas about him. And why are they included at all? Because, well, how was it that he was able to escape this cycle of birth and death, of rebirth and death? How was he able to see the cause of that whole problem? And the easiest way for us to do this is to say, well, he was special. He was different. He was not born in the same way that we were. He's otherworldly. And we see this get applied to heroes from just all over the place. Now, that in and of itself is instructive, especially when you're reading old mythology. Anytime we see a character that is not happily born of a mother and a father, think about Moses, for example, right? He has two parents, but of course, Pharaoh declares that all children, all the firstborn males have to die. So his mother places him in a basket in the Nile and he washes up on shore where the daughter of the Pharaoh assumes he is a child sent by the gods and raises him as her own, thus making him a magical orphan and giving him a divine birth, which make, shows how different he is. We see, we see this all over the place. Now, why does that matter? If you are going to be writing a character that is so different from the characters that they're ordinarily meeting with, why are they not answering all violence with violence? Why would they teach compassion, for example? Why are they concerned with the well-being of everybody when most of the characters in the story are going to be only concerned about their own well-being? The easiest and most eloquent answer, especially in the ancient world, was merely to say, well, they were born differently. They were born from the gods in some way, shape, or form. Why was Augustus able to create the empire when Julius Caesar couldn't? Well, that's because Augustus was Filii Dei. He was born of the gods and was divine himself. This is goes into the whole cult of the emperor that ends up developing around him and thus explains how he was able to bring about the Pax Romanus, the peace of Rome. Now, is any of that true? This is a question that gets asked in the stupidest ways at the stupidest times. It doesn't matter. It's all there to explain why the character in question is different. Why was Arthur, unlike the other petty warlords of his day, able to unite the British and fight off the Norman invaders? Why was he able to do this? Because his birth was orchestrated by Merlin, who cast a spell on his father, who allowed him to mate with his mother, and then took him off to be raised by yet another person, so that this magical personage could develop and grow and become the great King Arthur. Yeah, it, it's explaining their specialness. Now, this story, the reason I keep going back to King Arthur is it's important for everything that follows. King Arthur is the archetypal magical orphan because by this point in history, people would find it kind of sacrilegious if 
he was born of an angel, a demon, or a god. Now, notice I say he, because in a lot of these early stories, Merlin was born of a demon. He was half a demon. His father, usually in most of these stories, was an incubus who raped his mother, and that explains Merlin's magical powers. Not in all of the stories, but in quite a few of the early ones. But he's a mysterious, not necessarily good guy, who kind of sits on the edge of the story as kind of this hearkening back to the older times. Because he is this hearkening back to the older times, he can have a much more pagan origin. Our good hero king can't. So we can't have him born of a god, born of an angel, born of a demon. We can't have any of that, but we still need to show that his birth is special. So we have Merlin intervene. Merlin being only half divine, half demon, half whatever, depending on the story that you're reading, thus gives Arthur his specialness and makes him a divine orphan. He's magical in his growing up, in that he does not grow up in the privilege that he should have as son of Uther Pendragon. He does not grow up in the castle as he should have as the child of Ygraine. No, he grows up as a squire to a petty Sir Kay, and thus learns lessons of humility and how people should treat one another so that when he pulls the sword from the stone, becomes King Arthur, he does not make himself despot king. He creates the round table where no one sits at the head because the table has no head. All are equal at the round table. And he learned this because of the specialness of his birth, which led to the specialness of his life, which then led to the specialness of his rule. But of course, he can't be perfect because, again, that would be sacrilege in the Middle Ages. So he falls in love with, of course, a bad woman who cheats with his bad friend, who he should have known better than to be friends with a Frenchman. I mean, this is British propaganda, is it not? Of course, it's Lancelot Dulac that you know, ends up betraying him. And then, of course, his son, Mordred, who is much more akin with the old ways. Dot, 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 dot. We see our model get built. We see our hero. We see our king, who is born a magical orphan. He's magical in the sense that he, only he can draw the sword of the stone, from the stone, receive the sword from the Lady of the Lake, or any of the other origin stories that circulated around him that made him special. And with Arthur comes the new breed of hero that we start seeing more and more through the Middle Ages into the Renaissance and into our modern day fiction, where it's not as common for us to say our characters are special because, well, they're demigods, unless, of course, you're reading the Percy Jackson books, then, yeah, they're demigods, because he go there. But, for the most part, our characters are not made special in that way, but they still need to be set aside from the others in their origin. A really good way to see how this is often done in modern telling is when you read A Game of Thrones or watch the HBO show by George R.R. R. Martin or as I like to call him, Gur. <laughs> so Gur magically orphans most of the characters. 
I mean, even the Lannisters are technically half-magical orphans in that their mother died, and that gives a big part of the origin story for Tyrion. He is the monster that he is in Cersei's eyes, because, and Tywin's, because he killed his mother when he was born. What kind of a monster kills their mother? Suddenly, we have a reinterpretation of the magical orphan and the magical birth. All of the Starks are, in course of the books, made into magical orphans. We have Ned and later Catelyn being killed, these being the origin points of all of our heroes' stories. Rob would not have become King of the North had his father not been killed. He also would have, you know, probably stayed King of the North if he'd listened to his mother, but that's a whole other story, and we're not talking about Gurr's books right now in that kind of a detail. Arya would never have gone to Bravos if she had not witnessed the death of her father and later found out about the death of her mother. Her magical orphan status is what makes her eventually decide to go to Bravos and, as we see on the TV show, become a faceless man because, let's be honest, nobody's ever going to find out how these books end because Winds of Winter is never going to come. <laughs> Winter is not coming. And I say that with confidence because that means the book will finally come out because, you know, I, I can't be right. <laughs> Anywho. And we see that origin story repeated again and again and again. Why is Jon Snow, Snow magical? Because he's the first to become magically orphaned, right? He has to take an oath. And in that oath, he renounces his father. He renounces his name. He renounces everything. And thus, like everyone up at the wall, becomes instantly a magical orphan. And yeah, the people that we meet at the wall are all magical orphans from their ability to read, which is and retain information, which is kind of a magical ability in the Song of Ice and Fire. Let, let's be honest, right? Tyrion, also a magical orphan, also has this power. Right? We see over and over and over again. Why are they magical orphans? Again, we have to set them apart and show them as they are. We have to show them as different from the world, and thus the reason that they are special. Now, you can say that being a magical orphan doesn't necessarily make one special. Many of the characters in my own books are orphans, especially in the world of the Ash Dancer, not because the circumstances of their birth makes them special, with the exception of Shinobu, but because it's a harsh world and, well, you're lucky if you grow to adulthood and your parents are still around. That's just the nature of the setting. So, why should we care about magical orphans? Why should we care about them at all? The reason this trope is exists, as we have already discussed, is to explain why our characters are not like the other characters that exist in the world. Why are they different? Why is Tyrion different? Because he had the audacity to kill his mother at birth, therefore he's allowed to be different. It, it's strange, and you might not understand that that's why it's there, but if Tyrion had a loving mother, for example, that was able to raise him and 
by extension, Jamie and Cersei, do you really think they would have ended up as messed up as they were? I mean, the Lannisters kind of have to be magical orphans just to explain the sheer nuttiness of their existence. Now, would it be possible for us to tell the same story without magically orphaning any of these characters? Uh, maybe. Like I said, the problem really comes in with the Lannisters in that exactly how would their story have been different if they had somebody who wasn't as frigid and cold as Tywin in the family raising Cersei, Jaime, and Tyrion? That probably would change quite a bit about them. Well, what about Daenerys? Her entire story is the archetypal magical orphan. She was born in the middle of a storm. Yeah, of course she was. Of course she was. She is, after all, the great dragon queen. And so we have to start her story there. And then, of course, she's magically orphaned because her parents are killed by the, well, let's just say the war of the, the, yeah, we'll just say the war <laughs> because I don't want to get off on a tangent here. So she, of course, like her brother Viserys, are magically orphaned. The problem is she was orphaned as a baby. So everything she knows about her family is kind of idealized either in Ares being a crazy, crazy monster creature, person, or Rhaegar being almost angelic, because these are the stories that she's heard about them. This allows her to build and develop her identity separate from that of the Targaryens. We see the exact opposite with her brother Viserys, who, well, was old enough to have some memories from back in Dragonstone, but has built this image of himself as the great ruling dragon king. I am the dragon, don't anger the dragon, and all that crap. So what we see in the works of George R. R. Martin and the works of J.K. Rowling with the Harry Potter books is that... Other, with hmm, How can I say this? Because I was almost... That would have been a very weird sentence. Uh, the magical orphaning doesn't just other these characters and show that they come from a different world, but it's also vital to how their character develops and how their story goes forward. Neville, for example, well, he's forced to live with his gran, who is constantly comparing him to his father and how he doesn't measure up. Neville is bad at magic for a large chunk of the series because if you actually pay attention, he's using his father's wand. The same thing's true for Ron Weasley, by the way, who's also shown as being very bad at magic throughout most of the series until he suddenly becomes good when his wand is broken in book two, and it's not his wand. It was his uncle's wand that he had inherited. He gets his own wand and suddenly becomes better at magic. Ah, see how this is working out? It's very important that these inheritances are not used to hamper us in our development as people. It's a subtle little bit of the story, but it's a part of the story nonetheless. We also see, as in Neville's case, him wanting to be, well, 
not necessarily his parents, but to live up to the legend of his parents. And his proudest moment is when his grandmother tells him that he's just like his father. Because he never got to know his father, because his parents were, well, not killed, but for all intents and purposes killed when they were driven crazy by the Lestranges through the use of the Cruciatus Curse. Harry's story couldn't be even any more importantly tied to the whole thing with being a magical orphan. Now, I don't feel like I necessarily have to say spoilers for the Harry Potter books and movies because they've been out for a while and they're kind of culturally ubiquitous by this point, but just in case, I will be talking about the very end of the books. So if you don't want to be spoiled, you've been warned. The f fact that Voldemort picked Harry over Neville is what makes him the Chosen One. It's not because he was the Chosen One by prophecy, it's that, well, the prophecy was made that somebody on born on that day would become the one who would defeat Voldemort. At least that's how Voldemort heard the prophecy. The actual prophecy stated, neither can live while the other survives. This is true because of the way that Voldemort would end up killing them. Now, here's the question. What would have happened if Voldemort would have gone after Neville? Well, knowing what we know, and knowing that the Longbottoms were probably already in St. Mungo's at this point, Neville would have been raised by his cra grandmother. Gran definitely would have sacrificed herself in an attempt to save Neville in just the way that Lily did to save Harry. Thus, Voldemort would have been incapable of killing Neville, so either one of these two infants would have become a horcrux for Voldemort. They would have been raised with that horcrux within them, and whether they turned out to be a hero, as is the case with Harry, and also Neville, or if they had fallen victim to the horcrux and become evil and another dark lord in their own right, neither can live while the other survives. You see, the prophecy is just vague enough and true enough that it doesn't matter which way we actually go with this. If Harry Potter had turned out to be yet another Dark Lord, which we find out that the Death Leaders think he might be, which is why they initially show interest in him, the prophecy would have been fulfilled either way. This is the use of the Magical Orphan as plot device as actual purposeful story element to explain how and why the characters are connected and how they're connected through magic and if i must say a beautiful way of exhibiting the main theme of the books that love is more powerful more powerful than everything even death that's the main theme of the books explained beautifully through the magical orphan trope and that's why they're powerful, that's why they're prevalent, and that's why they're used. Now, they can be overused because it can easily be just a, well, you know, they don't have parents because parents and family would be really hard to deal with in this story, and I've already got enough characters, so bing, orphan. Or you're writing a story and you just assume that they have to be orphans because, well, characters in this type of story generally are. I'm not saying that it can't be overused, it can. But when used properly and used well, like in the Harry Potter books, and I would say even in the Song of Ice and Fire books, 
that uses the concept of orphans in a very interesting and powerful way, it can be a very, very powerful tool in the hands of a writer. So what trope would you like to hear me talk about next week? I have kind of a list I'm putting together and I would like to know, you know, what ones you're interested in. And how did you like this? See, I didn't want to take the tone of how to write the trope because I think that Trope Talk by Sarcastic Media does a really good job on that. What I haven't seen so much is these kind of dissections of the trope, where they come from and why they appear. So that's kind of more what I'm going to be doing with them. But if you want some more tips and tricks and stuff, please do let me know and I will adjust my content accordingly. Because after all, as I always say, I want this to be our podcast. So if you want to tell me what trope you want to hear next Tuesday or just to get it on the list, hit me up on Twitter. I'm C.E. Dorson on Twitter. You can go to Inker.fm, download the Inker app, follow Project Shadow, and then hit the voice message button. Keep it clean so I can use it in the show and leave your question, comment, or topic in there, and I'll get back to you, because I really do want this to be our podcast. And again, thank you to Art Plant for their suggestion that I should do this. I don't think they meant as a series, but I'd been thinking about it as a series for a while, and they gave me the excuse to do it. So thank you. <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode and the app that you're listening to me on allows you to rate either this episode or the podcast in general, please do so. That helps me out a lot. That tells the algorithm to share me with more people. If you've got a buck or so that you can throw my way down in the show notes, you'll see a link to community, the community support page. If you click that, you can join the project at the $1, $5, or $10 levels. That helps me do pretty much everything that I do. You can also buy a copy of Crucify My Love, which is available in an Amazon near you, because if you don't give them exclusivity, they, they make your life a living hell. Just saying. Um, you can also listen to the podcast at maskofthegods.com. Yeah. I think that's about it. If you want to find out everything that I'm doing, just head over to projectshadow.com and you'll find links to everything there. Until next time, don't forget, have the fun. Bye.